Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Food. I'm your moderator, and my name is Valerie St. Rossi. Today I'm very pleased to be speaking with Andrew Koh about his book, Chop Suey, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. It was published by Oxford University Press in 2009. Andy, welcome to New Books in Food. Hi, Valerie. Thank you for having me. Before we begin talking about the book, I wonder if you would tell us a little about yourself and how you came to write about Chinese food. Well, I'm a, um, a writer, a food historian, and an independent scholar. And uh, I've long been, I've always loved Chinese food. And um, I had also been writing a lot about New York history. And um, in the New York Public Library, I ran across some photographs of Chinatown, New York's Chinatown in the 1940s. And in above every restaurant, the signs didn't say, you know, Hop Key restaurant. They said Hop Key Chop Suey. Big signs, neon signs saying Chop Suey were above like every building. And... Um, a few days later, I went down to Chinatown and walking around and started, started thinking about that photo and realized that the chop suey signs were gone. And it just started me wondering, well, what was chop suey? Where did it come from? Why was it like suddenly so amazingly popular and why did it disappear? And um, that led to an article and the article snowballed into a larger research project, which turned into this book. Where did that article run? Well, it's um, in one of those um, typical um, publishing stories. It was um, um, going to run in American Heritage magazine, and then American Heritage magazine um, folded briefly, was purchased, and the new editors of American Heritage decided that they wanted a different uh, editorial viewpoint, which didn't include food history. So the article never ran. But that was okay because I was already writing a book by that time. And we're very lucky that Oxford picked that up. So let's talk about that book. As we we all know, Chinese food is ubiquitous throughout the United States. Everyone has ideas about it. But beyond uh, the menu, people know very little about Chinese food. And they know very few facts. Uh, in your first two chapters, you describe the dawn of America's relationship with China. And that begins with uh, an American clipper ship arriving in China in 1784. I wonder if you would tell us about this first stage of U.S.-Chinese contact. Well, um for Americans to start eating Chinese food, they had to have some contact with the Chinese people. And um, this began very, very early in our in our history as an independent nation. 
1783, um, the American Revolution ended um, with the United States victorious over England, um, but also um, the United States was in a very kind of precarious situation at that time because England had blockaded, essentially blockaded American trade from Europe and um, America was isolated. It didn't have any foreign markets and it needed to make trade contacts with the rest of the world. Um, so in 1784, a group of East Coast merchants purchased and um, fitted out a, bo a boat called the Empress of China. They named it that because they thought the Emperor of China would be pleased to as, uh, to please the Emperor of China to make him think that uh, Americans, uh, you know, were were uh, on his side. And um, they filled it with ginseng which they'd heard uh, that the Chinese loved, and, and lots of ginseng grew wild in, in the hills of Appalachia and other parts of the, of the East Coast. And um, it sailed to China. And this was, an, you know, for the time and for the United States, this was like the moonshot was in the 20th century. I mean, they were going to the other side of the world on a very long and dangerous voyage um, to a country which was essentially... You know, they knew nothing about, but it was was utterly alien. Um, and they landed in what was called uh, the port of Canton, which is the only place where Europeans or any kind of foreigners could um, do trade in China, sold their load of ginseng. And at the same time, the Americans who were in the trading party ate their first Chinese food. And when they got home, they wrote about it. And... Um, Americans were just fascinated by the tales of Chinese food and um, the tales of how the Chinese lived. And, um, and this began a whole long trading relationship with China, which also began to include more and more Americans tasting Chinese food. But in, at that point, it was only in China. In the 19th century, uh, the compliment was returned and Chinese began to come to the West Coast. Could you tell us why? Well, in um, 1848, gold was discovered in California. And this was just at the time that, that the United States had taken over California, um, had become a territory, um, and uh, it meant it was just like the whole world um, – learned the news very, very rapidly. And treasure seekers from around the globe started hurrying to California, and particularly to San Francisco and um, the mountains east of San Francisco where the gold was found. And these treasure seekers included Chinese. Uh, some of the Chinese went there uh, to work in the mines, but other ones um, realized that all this big gold business would also mean all kinds of other business um, for supplying food and other items for, for, the, for the gold miners. And so they, instead of going to the hills in, in, um, uh, for, up to the gold mines, they settled in, in San Francisco and um, opened little businesses. And um, among those businesses were the first Chinese restaurants in the United States. And some of them um, just served Chinese food, but we believe that most of them served a kind of dual menu. Um, half of it was Chinese for their Chinese compatriots, and half of it was um, you know, Western or European style. 
um, serving things like, you know, fried steak and coffee. Uh, and they'd learned to make this kind of food, um, it, well, because these, these restaurateurs had um, learned the trade in Hong Kong and Canton, um, and they knew that this is what, what the British and other Europeans, this was the kind of food that they liked to eat. So they very, very early settled into the food trade on the west coast of, uh, of the United States. Where is chop suey on the menu in California at this time? Is it? Well, we have never heard of chop suey being on the menu at that time. Um, the menus that we've seen from the from the um, mid-19th century in California are almost all elaborate banquet menus because the Chinese trading firms that, that built up businesses in, China, in, in San Francisco um, would, you know, once or twice a year have big banquets for all the local leaders, the white, you know, the white um, politicians and businessmen in San Francisco. And um, there were like rather amazing accounts of these banquets. So they weren't um, sort of more low key and humble dishes like chop suey. But this was like high class Cantonese style banquet food um, with, you know, banquets with multiple courses and all kinds of amazing imported ingredients. And so chop suey did not figure in this in this at all. Um, and I should further say that the Californians at the time appear not to have gained a taste for Chinese food at this time because um, for two reasons. One, they just thought Chinese food was too weird, too alien. The flavors were just not right for he- for them. The way that the food was prepared, instead of having like big like roasts of beef, which were sliced at the table, all the meat was cut up in, into little chunks. Um, the seasonings of sesame oil, soy sauce, ginger, garlic were, were just too strong and too alien for, for them. And um, they would go, you know, once or twice a year to have the banquet and have something to tell their children about. But they wouldn't make a habit of going down to a Chinese restaurant for lunch once a week or something like that, because that was simply um, not done. And there was also, you know, it wasn't just the food. I mean, you know, back then, people had very, very strong feelings about race and which races were acceptable and which races were not. And there was huge... Um, you know, racist sentiment against um, the Chinese. Um, at this time, it was sort of simmering on a low boil. Um, the Chinese were accepted, but um, in very, very narrow fields of work, but they weren't really, you know, allowed to, to, to really take fully part in society. Um, there was not particularly very much violence against them at that time. But the Chinese were definitely meant to, you know, they, the Chinese were... They were okay to have in the city, but they had to be kept in their place. Uh, when the Intercontinental Railroad was completed, that was the project that had so many Chinese laborers um, doing, uh, doing all the work, there suddenly must have been an enormous population of Chinese who didn't have work anymore. What did they do? Well, actually, um, let me tell you. Okay, the, the Intercontinental Railway, which was the railway which linked the East and the West Coast, and the 
the construction of the railway, I believe, began in, in the 1860s. And the, the original um, workers who were hired to, to work on the railroad were, were largely um, Irish immigrants who had come from the East Coast. And um, the railway, railway owners had a lot of trouble with these workers because they tended to be, like, argumentative. Um, on, on Saturday nights, they drank too much and got into fights. And um, they, on, as an experiment, they hired a group of Chinese laborers to see how they would do. And um, the Chinese were very, very well behaved, very, very um, hardworking, and they didn't have the same propensity uh, for alcohol. Um, so the the Chinese, um, the, the, the railway owners hired thousands and thousands of Chinese to work on the railways. And um, and this caused for, for the other workers, the 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 Irish and, and the other um, recent arrivals from the east, this caused tremendous resentment um, because the uh, because they wanted the you know they needed jobs as well and they were thinking like why should these Chinese these aliens take the jobs from like hardworking Americans um, and um, this caused like tremendous amounts of friction and um, and grew into what what was called the Chinese must go movement um, and when the when the work on the railway stopped because the railway was completed um, the combination of less work in the West um, from the railways and the really outright violence of the Chinese must go movement because the, the, these masses of, uh, of, of mobs would go through the, um, go through Chinatowns and Chinese communities in the West and burn stores. And sometimes even just like, uh, you know, shoot the um, innocent Chinese people. And so, they um, decided to get out of town. Many of them decided to, to leave the West, and some of them headed back to China. Others went to Mexico or Canada, and large groups of them went to the East Coast. And this is when the um, East Coast cities like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington um, were first settled by um, fairly large communities of Chinese immigrants. Around uh, what year was that, Andy? Well, the um, the Chinese must go. The anti-Chinese movement really began to peak in the mid to late 1870s, um, and in the 1882, um, the the United States government uh, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, which made it much much harder for for Chinese to immigrate and to um, become citizens. And um, the, the great migrations of the Chinese happened in the late 1870s and the, and the um, early 1880s. Um, there were still remained some Chinese, sizable Chinese populations in the West, and particularly in Portland and, and San Francisco, um, but um, a lot of the smaller Chinese communities emptied out. So this, this was the origin of East Coast Chinatowns. It was escaping from racial violence and tension and even political pressure, uh, pressures in the West to solve the quote-unquote Chinese problem, correct? Yes. 
I mean, on the East Coast, there had been Chinese living in places like New York for, for decades. But they were kind of like, um, I think of them kind of like as flotsam and jetsam, people who had sort of like washed up, Chinese who had like kind of washed up there. Um, they were Chinese sailors who, whose boat had like left without them, or sometimes Chinese theatrical troops which got stranded in New York or, or, or other cities. So they had, um, New Yorkers had seen Chinese beforehand, but it was really in the early 1880s that the Chinese began to settle along Mott Street on the uh, Lower East Side that um, the real Chinatown, uh, New York's Chinatown, began to, began to form. And at the same time, smaller Chinatowns began to form in Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington. Uh, you said that people had seen Chinese uh, through the stranded uh, stranded settlers who were uh, here in cities. Can you describe for us what a Chinese man looked like in 1880? Well, um, I think of the, the Chinese um, in the 19th century, particularly to people who saw them for the first time, looked more or less like space aliens. I mean, they were just very, too, too like, a, like an average New Yorker or something like that. Seeing a Chinese person for the first time was a very, very strange experience because um, they were almost, the Chinese were almost all men. They wore their hair in a long queue, which was like a long braid hanging down from back, because, down their back, because this was um, a sign of the, uh, the Manchu dynasty, which then ruled uh, China. Um, they wore, instead of wearing tight, tightly fitted, fitted jacket and trousers and, and shirt, they wore long, loose jackets and baggy trousers, and on their and on their feet they wore felt-covered slippers rather than um, tightly laced leather boots. And uh, you know, social um, conventions were very, very strict back then, and there was a right way and a wrong way for men to dress, particularly when they were out on the street. And um, everything about the Chinese was was wrong. Um, and then you you had the kind of uh, the customs with where the social customs of the Chinese were also utterly alien. When, for instance, when when an American uh, two American men met, they shook hands. Um, when they uh, when two Chinese men met, they touched their own hands together and bowed. So, I mean, this these things were would um, were people were tremendously sensitive to social conventions at that at that time. And whatever the Chinese did was alien. There are uh, contemporary photos in your book. And uh, what what struck me particularly uh, in the hairdo of the Chinese men was that most of their head was shaved. And the cue was the only hair that, that was visible. Is that correct? Right. The cue that came down from pretty much uh, the back of the head. Yes. Like the ponytails that men have right. now. And of Other course, and, and Western men also had, you know, very usually very conspicuous facial hair, you know, great handlebar mustaches and beards, and um, the Chinese men did not. So this was other all caps. <laughs> yes. Now, a very a very unexpected thing happened. Chinese uh, food, or maybe this is the birth of the chop suey uh, phrase. And Chinatown suddenly became extremely 
uh, attractive to a group of New Yorkers n- known as the Bohemian crowd. Uh, Chinatown became trendy, right? Right. What happened? How did this happen? Well, New York in the 1880s and 1890s was filled with immigrants. And um, it was also home to a large uh, population of artists and, and writers and people who consider and they call, who called themselves Bohemians. They lived a kind of uh, a free and easy lifestyle, working for newspapers, painting, um, writing books. And um, they were very, very interested in exploring exotic experiences. And um, they didn't have to travel to Europe or, or to Asia to do this anymore because they could have those ex- exotic experiences right home in New York. And they began to explore the immigrant quarters and ex- began to explore immigrant restaurants. And um, among the restaurants that they discovered were the Chinese restaurants of Lower Mott Street. And, um, you know, they walked in and, and managed to communicate enough with the restaurant owners to to say, you know, tell them, just give me a meal of the best of what you have. And um, they were given, um, you know, five, six, eight course meals. And among the dishes, which they noticed, were something which the restaurant owners called chow chop suey. And um, for some reason... The bohemian artist types just fell in love with chow chop suey. And um, that was the beginning of the chop suey craze. And it's unclear exactly what the dish contained, this chow chop suey, back then in the 1880s. Um, It seems to have been a kind of like mixed stir fry. Um, And in fact, chow chop suey translated probably means something like um, um, stir fried odds and ends. And uh, it's hard to and and this could this could include all kinds of ingredients, um, including um, various kinds of vegetables, uh, dried seafood imported from China and um, and and, you know, organ meats like chicken gizzards. Um, it may there may not have been a set recipe for it. It could have been a seasonal dish, or it could have been um, what what the Bohemians saw as one dish, as one chow chop suey with a fixed set of ingredients. Actually, could have been a series of different dishes, but they just didn't have the uh, the understanding of Chinese food to know. But but for whatever reason, um, they chow chop suey, or what you just came to came to be called chop suey, became like an object of obsession. Um, it was tasty, filling, and cheap, and um, and soon, like not just Bohemians, but all kinds of New Yorkers, you know, working girls working in the garment district nearby, um, people coming up uh, from the uh, the government center from from City Hall and and the, and the government offices to, to the south, just to the south of Chinatown, began to fill um, Chinese restaurants during lunch hour because they loved the food. So was this dish extremely other, or was there some um, Western European equivalent that it was enough, uh, had enough similarity with, so people uh, didn't feel uh, that the, as though they were eating something extremely alien? Well, it was um, it was extremely other. It's chop suey is. You know, in some ways similar to a Western stew, but it's also very, very different from a Western stew because a Western stew is, some, you know, usually something like, you know, meat and potatoes 
or something similar. But yeah. this was this was like in, in, um, contained beans, sprouts, and celery and onions and all of it chopped up into little tiny pieces, and that just wasn't the way of preparation at all. But I think that Americans and particularly New Yorkers were really really interested in having experimenting with a food that was really exotic at that time. Um, a, because of the large immigrant population, they were being exposed to like all kinds of interesting foreign customs. Um, but also because of the, in the late 19th century, um, America was in an expansionist mode, um, there, and particularly across the Pacific. Um, this was you know, the time of the Monroe Doctrine, and America was beginning to assert its power, not just in California, but in Hawaii, and further all the way west, um, you know, to the Philippines. Um, you know, the American Navy was 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 uh, showing the flag in very very uh, far flung parts of the world, and um, this made Americans a lot more interested in in the customs and cultures and cuisines of other countries, and they were in the mood for something strange and exotic, and Chinese food fit the bill. So, in a way. Uh, America wa was finally leaving its adolescence as a culture and looking beyond its own borders. Is that correct? Right. I mean, um, you know, in the early days of American food, I mean, you know, we were very, very Anglo-centric. Um, and then uh, in the 19th century, we became more and more like um, Franco-centric um, for food, you know, much more interested, very, very interested in French food, which was considered the Europe elite European food. Um, but by the 19th century, we're open to a lot more different kinds of, of food. And I think that shows definitely a sort of maturity of, of the culture. Um, we really were into broadening our horizons. Uh, I like the description of the chop suey. Uh, you use a phrase, uh, the this dish that was so popular with the bohemians, the artists, the uh, shop girls, the office workers, uh, you say that apparently it was the ingredients and all the um, known and unknown were cooked to exhaustion. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have an idea that it probably was not the kind of crisp stir-fry that we associate with Chinese eating today? Well, I mean, I think it was, we don't know how the Chinese prepared it for themselves. Um, but certainly the, the chop suey, which, um, you know, was inherited uh, by chop suey restaurants into the 20th century, and which I tried as, as a child and, and did not like, was an overcooked, gloppy mess. And... Um, and I think that one reason it was it was like that is because that's the way we liked our food in a lot of ways. We we didn't you know now we have a, a taste for you know vegetables that are undercooked more than overcooked um, that are crisp still crisp and fresh and for for strong kind of bold flavors. But back then, where our tastes were very very different. And um, I think that chop suey was cooked to our taste, um, particularly, you know, when, and I think that chop suey, the, the chefs, the restaurant, Chinese restaurateurs quickly learned the way that Americans like to, to, to have it prepared. And that's the way they decided that chop suey should be. I, uh, I am remembering the title of a song that uh, became famous, I guess it was in the 20s was it Louis Armstrong? 
that that refers to chop suey. Can you tell me that title? Well, chop suey. This was cornet chop suey, which is uh, an instrumental, sort of very lively uh, instrumental um, trumpet piece by uh, Louis Armstrong. But you know, chop suey. Um, it became so popular in the early 20th century that it bounced from you know the restaurants and restaurant menus into the popular culture. So you had movies with showing people eating chop suey. You had songs about chop suey. One of my favorite ones was titled uh, "Who'll Chop Your Suey When I'm Gone." And uh, that's wonderful. <laughs> And um, you also had other dishes that were that were called chop suey. For instance, a chop suey Sunday was a Sunday which was um, um, covered um, covered with chopped candied fruit and syrup. So it was like a chopped up like chop suey is, but it was it was a Sunday instead um, because chop suey was like you know that was that was like the rage at the time. So it was just a magic phrase, and anything could. Chop sueyized. Exactly. Now, I would like to move ahead to the middle of the 20th century, uh, the period of the suburban Chinese restaurant, as you refer to, and also changes in the laws concerning emigration, because that had a huge effect on the Chinese, and it also had a huge effect according um, to what you say in uh, chapter uh, chapter 5 i believe uh, on the how chinese food changed in america uh, could you tell us first of all what the changes were in immigration law and how that affected the way chinese was being cooked we're talking about the 50s, right after the war. Right. Well, what happened was is that um, in the era, in the decades after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, immigration from China was essentially stopped. I mean, some people were still managing to get in, and there was certainly illegal immigration of, of Chinese into the United States. Um, but the Chinese population slowly began to drop. Um, particularly because there were relatively few Chinese women in proportion to men. And so, uh, you know, the Chinese population was not replenishing itself. And Chinatowns began to empty out. And um, the American Chinese culture sort of became moribund. And um, and at the same time, there was lots of problems with China, with um, the Japanese invasion and and, and World War II. Um, So people's contact with China was being cut off by strife um, back in back in uh, the Middle Kingdom. So Chinese food kind of became old and tired. Um, the menus didn't change. Um, they the 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 restaurateurs, you know, tried to update not their menus, but let's say the decor of their restaurants in order to make things seem more exciting. But the food was still the same. And, um, you know, after World War II, they did move out uh, and open Chinese and uh, Chinese restaurants in, in the in the new suburbs and, and you know, gain, you know, you know, following their audience, their customer base out there. Um, but there really wasn't much going on beyond that in, in the Chinese food world. But at the same time, beginning in World War Two and continuing um, um, bit by bit in the next decades, immigration laws began to change. And they began to allow in 
larger and larger um, numbers of Chinese immigrants. They began to allow Chinese finally to become citizens. And um, the Chinese were coming into the United States. Among them were chefs, people who knew how to cook food um, um, that was as it was prepared in Hong Kong and in Taiwan and also in mainland China. And um, bit by bit, people began to realize that the food served in your average chop suey restaurant was not the ser- food served in, in, in China. Um, you know, back in the early 20th century, people had thought that uh, chop suey was the national dish of China. And they were learning that um, chop suey was not that that national dish and, and that, that the vast majority of Chinese had never heard of it. And for various reasons, really sort of looked down on it. So people were beginning to think, hmm, maybe I want like some real Chinese food, not this chop suey stuff. The Chinese uh, food of America up to that point was from a particular region in the Pearl River Delta uh, leading up to Canton, which we now know the true name of or the Chinese name of Guangdong. Well, it's Guang, and, no, it's Guangdong but, oh, in Guangzhou. Guangdu, yes, Guangzhou. Yes, it's confusing. Thank, thank you for correcting <laughs> me. Um, so this food, this mixture, odds and ends, was actually not high class food, was it? Well, it was. It was not high class food. It was um, most of the Chinese early Chinese immigrants in the United States were from Toisan, which was a uh, town, which is now, of course, a city of, of a couple of million people on the Pearl River, River Delta, uh, southwest of Guangzhou, which is the, the capital of uh, Guangdong province. And um, so this was Toisanese food, and it was, you know, Toisan was not the richest town um, in, 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 in the region, and um, the food was not considered, you know, this was not like a high-class uh, um, uh, uh, culinary culture. It was, it was more or less peasant food. Um, and imagine if, um, you know, instead of having the, the food that's served in New York City, people fell in love with the food that's served in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Well, it's, you know, still American food or, or the food in, Chi- in Toysana is still Chinese food, but it's really not the food of, of the, of the you know, what's considered one of the great culinary cultures. Um, it's, so, a, it's a little bit, it's a very, very small part of a regional cuisine. Um, and, um, and... So the, the Chinese immigrants, um, particularly, you know, there were a lot of refugees coming to, to, to the United States after the uh, communist takeover. And among them were some very, very high class Chinese who had grown up in Shanghai or Beijing. And they'd really eaten like, you know, the top Chinese food. And um, some of them began to say, you know, may, maybe we should open a restaurant here. So tell us about these uh, Taiwanese and mainland chefs. And the, uh, as you say, the uh, affluent refugees who needed a new way of life and decided that restaurants may be, may be their solution. Well, um, they were, a, as one might guess, a, a mixed bag of people. Some of them were, had been chefs in the, uh, um, the Chinese embassies and consulates of, in various you know, American cities. Um, and uh, at the takeover, they couldn't go back to China because they were on the side of the nationalists, so uh, they had to stay in the U.S. And other ones were refugees who who had uh, had fled to um, from fled fled to Taiwan from from the mainland, and uh, but 
you know, they had been chained in chefs as chefs in, in China and, and in, you know, in some of the great restaurants. And um, and a lot and some of them uh, managed to, to get to the United States. And, um, it, you know, at that time, there was still essentially de facto um, racial bias against Chinese and and their opportunities were limited. But um, they were the one route that was open to them was opening a restaurant. Because uh, that was what you know it was considered okay for the Chinese to do, and um, they fa- opened restaurants in cities like San Francisco, Washington, and in New York. Um, and um, there was um, one called the Four Seas in New York, which was a, sh- a Shanghai restaurant. There was a Peking restaurant in Washington, and a woman named Cecilia Shang um, opened a restaurant in San Francisco, and these. Um, serve food not from Thai Toisan, but from Beijing, Shanghai, and other centers of Chinese cuisine. Um, and it opened people's eyes. Um, you know, a few sort of Chinese food aficionados, people like Craig Claiborne, to the possibilities of Chinese food. So Craig Claiborne was the uh, food critic of the New York Times, and he was the first non-female uh, restaurant reviewer also, and he had uh, influence beyond New York to direct people uh, people's interest toward different cuisines. He must have been instrumental in promoting uh, this new kind of Chinese food. Right. Uh, the interesting thing about Craig Claiborne is that you know he grew up in uh, Mississippi, in rural Mississippi. And um, was that the toy son of uh, America? <laughs> yes. Yes. In a way it was. And um, yeah, a hot, uh, a hot part of the part of the country on a on a river delta. And he um, he did taste Chinese food a little bit in when he was a kid and he was just overwhelmed by the exoticism of it. But he didn't uh, wasn't that impressed by the food. But when he came to New York and started working as a restaurant critic, um, he didn't know much about Chinese food, um, but he wanted to learn. And he apprenticed, apprenticed himself to some of these um, uh, refugees who had, who had had businesses as um, open restaurants or also open catering or cooking school businesses. And he really taught himself a lot about Chinese food. And he was instrumental in sort of opening um, the larger population's eyes to Chinese food. And the big, uh, the big thing that he did, one of the most radical things that he did, was he gave a restaurant named Shun Li, um, which is still open, um, and at that time it was um, specializing in Sichuan food. Um, he gave it four stars, the highest rating for a New York uh, a restaurant in the New York Times. And this was, you know, if you think about the history of Chinese restaurants in the United States. This was incredible. This was an enormous breakthrough. The, it was the Nobel Prize. Yes. And that was mid-60s, correct? Right. Late, late 60s, I guess. Like late around 60s. 68, maybe. Now, there is another event that also was earth-shaking. And in Chapter 6, you describe it. Uh, Nixon made his historic trip to Beijing in 1973. 1972. 72. Right. Oh, sorry. Um, yes. And he uh, had to prepare for that trip. And 
it was the story of that preparation is just one of the most fascinating parts of your book. He he received an enormous training. Can you describe what he went through? K- Kissinger had been the uh, eminence grise setting up the possibility of Nixon's trip. But then here was Nixon, the cottage cheese and ketchup president. That something had to be changed. Could you tell us what happened? Well, Nixon um, wanted to open relations with communist China, which was then ruled by Chairman Mao, for a couple of reasons. One was he wanted to offset the power of the Soviet Union. If he could break up the communist bloc, um, he could uh, set the, 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 the Chinese, the communist Chinese, against, uh, against the Soviets even more than they were already against each other. Um, and at the same time, he wanted to show himself as a statesman on the world stage. And this was, of course, was uh, in the run up to the 1972 election, wherein he was running against uh, um, um, George McGovern. So he wanted to make George McGovern look like a sort of puny little ineffectual uh, local Democrat, you know, left winger and um, hit himself as a, as a world statesman. Um, so he wanted to open relations with China. Um, but the trip to China was, you know, this was a very complicated negotiation and there were some things going on in the negotiation, like essentially cutting loose Taiwan and, and, and stopping diplomatic ties to Taiwan, which were highly controversial. Um, and so rather than focus on the topics of negotiation, he wanted the American people to focus on other things like Nixon's experience of Chinese culture and also, on, they decided on Chinese food. So on the flight, uh, um, Nixon's flight to Beijing, um, he had to practice using chopsticks. And he had a big, he, like all the, everybody else on the plane, had a big briefing book. And, um, and in the briefing book, um, it said that, you know, during your week in China, you will be eating um, lots and lots of Chinese food. And this may be very unfamiliar to you and not resemble the Chinese food served in America. And it could include sea cucumbers, jellyfish, bear's paws, you know, songbirds, all kinds of weird things. And the best thing to do is simply to eat it and smile um, because um, it's very important that you swallow this food down for the good of the country. and he got to Beijing, and uh, the day he landed that evening, he had uh, was given a huge banquet um, in the Great Hall of the People, in in right in the heart of Beijing. And this was broadcast live on national TV. It was actually, you know, you could see it um, the next more. It was the next morning in the United States, and um, he. Um, you know, Americans, millions of Americans saw him eating real Chinese food, including Peking duck. And um, and he was eating with chopsticks, which is no Americans really did at that time, even when they went to the, you know, the chop suey joint. And um, this just caused a huge change in Americans viewpoint of Chinese food. And they decided that they wanted to eat real Chinese food like they ate in China not like what was served in the chop suey joint down on the corner. So in effect, Nixon became 
the biggest ambassador for Chinese food that China ever had in the United States. Yes. I I remember that uh, he was asked uh, the adva- in preparation for this trip. There was an advanced question: What is uh, President Nixon's favorite food? So he would be served that in China, and he uh, diplomatically responded that he would eat everything that he was served. Yes. Uh, the the menu that you mentioned, songbirds and bear paw, these these are extremely exotic foods. Even in China, they're expensive, like the most expensive caviar, some such thing, botarga, that is a, a cod roe, a fish roe from Italy, uh, things that most people don't eat every day here either. So <clears throat> he was encountering the most elegant right well this was menu. i mean you know like we have caviar and champagne here which yeah. is you know for serve for banquets this was like the elite chinese banquet foods um particularly uh sea cucumbers birds nests peking duck things like that that was when you were like giving a banquet designed to impress your guests to show how rich and cultured and powerful you were these were the kinds of foods that you served and um this was like the biggest banquet most for the chinese it was the most important banquet um of the communist chinese um probably ever so they were very very concerned about making this a success one of the things that the chinese used as a uh, palliative when political discussions in the advance with the advance team of kissinger uh y- one of the dishes they used to uh, cool things off was Peking duck, uh, according to uh, what you say in Chapter 5. And so Peking duck was the comfort food whenever things got a little too rough. Right. Well, uh, Henry Kissinger was Nixon's advanced man in China. And they had to work out like, you know, when Nixon got there, all the groundwork had been done and, and um, uh, everything had sort of been worked, worked out um, um, beforehand. But Kissinger had to do all the hard work. And that included lots and lots of um, negotiating sessions with uh, Zhou Enlai, who was the number two man in China, very cultured, very sophisticated. And um, whenever things got too difficult in the negotiations and it looked like that they weren't going to be getting any further, um, Zhou Enlai would announce, oh, time for lunch or time for dinner, and, and they would repair to the dining hall for a Peking duck banquet. And then afterwards, they, you know, they would been, after they'd been stuffed with duck and their minds were kind of like suffused with an aura of, of beautiful warm duck fat, they went back to the negotiating table and all their differences seemed to sort of dissolve away. And um, this was, I think, very important in um, helping the two sides reach an agreement. Well, who knew? I, I would like to ask you now uh, about an epithet that you do mention throughout the book. Uh, the profile of Chinese food and its popularity in the United States centers on its being, quote, filling, cheap, and familiar, 
unquote. And this is something that uh, kind of holds Chinese food back uh, because people don't expect to spend a lot of money when they go to a Chinese restaurant. Uh, do you think that this will ever change? Um, well, it's very, very hard to change um, a nation's culinary habits, particularly on the large scale. Um, you know, the vast Ameri- you know, majority of Americans expect their Chinese food to be inexpensive. And, uh, you know, most Chinese dishes, um, um, not all of them are, are cheap and ingre- ingredients are, can be, you know, imported. They can be expensive. Um, but if we're not going to pay a lot of money for them, we're never going to be served those dishes. Um, and um, also, we don't like change. We have our idea now today of what is Chinese food and what the menu should include. It doesn't include chop suey anymore, but it does include dishes like um, beef with broccoli, chow fun, um, and uh, general sauce chicken. And we don't like to see that menu change. But on the other hand, um, we're lucky enough that there's still lots and lots of immigration from China, and there are a lot of restaurants which are open, which sell Chinese food for Chinese people. And there's some really great Chinese food out there right now. And I think we're really living right now in a kind of golden age for Chinese food in, in America. And does that, uh, is that across the board, across the country, or mainly in the urban centers? Well, it's mainly in and around the urban centers, um, because it depends on where the Chinese immigrants settle. And the two places which is really, you know, are the centers for Chinese food now are New York City and Los Angeles. Um, San Francisco's Chinatown is, is kind of fallen on hard times, and it doesn't really have, you know, there are Chinese restaurants in the suburbs there and various communities around San Francisco, which are good, but it, it really doesn't have a real center. But um, in New York, you have the Chinatowns, and uh, particularly in um, Flushing, um, in Brooklyn, and, uh, and of course, Manhattan's Chinatown. And in, in Los Angeles, you have the San Gabriel Valley, which is like an incredible treasure trove of uh, all kinds of interesting Chinese restaurants. I would uh, like to ask you a question about Chinese food as a uh, as a continuum. One thing you say in the book is that the steamed dumplings that we order whenever we go for dim sum, of having various fillings, have been eaten in the same form for as long as a millennium. And I know that there have been um, archaeological digs that have found jiaozi, which were the fried dumplings, that uh, were petrified. So Chinese food has been recognizably the Chinese food that's eaten today for a very long time. I'm not sure we can say that about European food. Why do you suppose uh, Chinese food has this continuum? Well, I think that Unlike in the United States, in China and in Chinese culture, food is at the center of the culture. Um, eating Chinese food is one of the things that make you, makes you Chinese. And to, so to be Chinese, you have to eat Chinese food. And, um, and I think that's the great difference. And, and it's not just like individual ingredients and dishes, but it's also a system of eating food. 
um, in the arrange in the organization of meals, what kind of meals you eat at what 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 hour of the day, and um, also of of uh, you know the the arrangement of the dishes, how many you know a vegetable dish, a rice dish, um, um, etc. Um, what kind of dishes? What 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 is the assemblage of dishes you eat at each meal? And I think that's really, you know, that makes you Chinese. And um, they're very Chinese have always been very, very good, no matter where they live in the world, at holding on to their Chinese culture. Um, and one of the ways they do it is through food. While um, I don't think Americans really would place food at the same way at the center of their culture. Now, this question is uh, the question that you're probably asked all the time. I would like to know what question you are asked the most about Chinese food. Well, <laughs> it's usually where can you get some good Chinese food? Um, and uh, I do have my suggestions for that, you know, depending uh, on where you want to go and what you want to eat. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's not – I mean, people, there's still – you know, the amazing thing is really about chop suey is the way that there's still – debate about chop suey. Is it real Chinese food or not? Um, and um, even, you know, decades, you know, more than a century after it was first became part of like American food, um, it's still something which people are, you know, want to debate and want to argue about. Um, and I find that fascinating um, because it really goes to the center of like what is, you know, what is the question of, of is, is can food be authentic? What is authentic food? What is real Chinese food? What is not real Chinese food? And um, that has a lot to do with um, the way we eat now. Those suburban restaurants, uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, were the home or the origin of the little umbrellas in cocktails. Isn't that true? Um, I'm not sure if, if it was the Chinese or, I mean, one of the interesting offshoots of, of Chinese-American food in the United States is, has been, quote-unquote, Polynesian food, which is a kind of like weird mixture of Chinese dishes with um, kind of Polynesian touches and decor, um, which was first uh, sort of specialized in by people like um, a restaurant called Don the Beachcomber and um, Trader Vic's. And they were the ones who who made this, uh, um, you know, something, you know, made this happening. And I and I don't know if who actually first put the parasols on it, on on the Chinese food, but um, they probably came with the exotic drink menu. And um, the Polynesian restaurants were very very big in the exotic drink department. And those were the restaurants of the 50s, correct? Right. They started. They started in the in the, in the actually in the 30s and the 40s, but it, during the, oh. the 50s and 60s, they really took off. They had the Chinese dishes, and the people and the chefs in the in the Polynesian restaurants are almost always Chinese. Um, but Americans were getting bored with Chinese food, and they wanted something a little newer and, and more exotic than Chinese food was at that, that time. And so Polynesian really sort of hit, filled the bill. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, veterans had experienced um, fighting in the Pacific during uh, World War II. And um, the sort of Pacific Island culture was always very attractive, um, you know, scantily clad young maidens and palm trees. And um, so the Chinese restaurants morphed into Polynesian restaurants. And they realized they could make a lot of money off of uh, more money selling um, um, very powerful exotic drinks than uh, Chinese food. 
and and uh, Broadway morphed into South Pacific. Exactly. Well, it seems that Chinese cuisine has almost gone around the world in the way it's been presented to Americans in America. And I want to thank you so much for telling us everything but where the best Chinese restaurant is. I think we will have to take that up on another time. Andy, it has been wonderful speaking to you. Chinese food is very dear to my heart, as you know. Yes, I do. And uh, we will uh, once again let the listeners know that your book is Chop Suey, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you so much, Andy. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Valerie. I had a lot of fun.